This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hello and welcome back to the Stadio Podcast, The Ringer FC. I'm Mr. Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hun. Ryan, how are you doing? How am I doing? Better than Barcelona is the answer. Oh, yikes. Oh, good Lord. Straight in? Yeah, straight in. Now that, oh my gosh. So for any remaining aliens within a 300 million <laughs> light year <laughs> radius of Earth, who don't know the result, Barcelona were beaten by eight goals to two against Bayern Munich in the Champions League quarterfinal. Wow. Okay, so 8-2. Yeah. Four and a half time, 8-2 at full time. So let's just actually even start with the game. So the game itself, Thomas Muller scoring the first goal, and it's never good when Muller scores first and his team looks confident. And it was funny because then Barcelona equalised, or more accurately, David Alaba equalised by slicing the ball into his own net. And there was a period where the game looked extremely open. Yeah, that first opening 20 minutes, really, until the, the Bayern second goal, I thought. And I almost feel like that's the moment when the superhero has to step in. Oh, you can't come in early with a superhero reference. Yeah, I just think, I just think it was weird. I, I, remember just, I remember thinking at the time when Miller scored the open, I thought Barcelona didn't even give time Messi, didn't even give Messi time to put his cape on. Yeah, I mean, well, let's talk about that Miller goal because to me, I mean, you wrote an amazing piece for the ringer. It was up two hours after the final whistle, <laughs> which I still don't understand how you did, but... For people who haven't read it, go to theringer.com forward slash soccer. Musa wrote an amazing piece on Thomas Muller, which I would, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm biased, but I would thoroughly recommend going out and checking. Oh, thanks, dude. But it seemed to be everything Thomas Muller can do in a nutshell. Yeah. A lovely technical layoff to Robert Lewandowski. He was already moving yeah. mid-contact with the ball. Yeah. Gets it back from Lewandowski and kind of scuffs this finish. But it's more of um, an improvised finish because the ball kind of skids away from him into the bottom corner and then the standard Thomas Muller just stand there turn around and growl celebration yeah in fact there's something I'd like to maybe look into about Thomas Muller and I wonder if there's a possibility of doing you know how you can track distances yeah I wonder if you could do distance track on celebrations I reckon he'd be the least I agree never runs off yeah. to the celebrate he's just always just turns around and stands wherever he is do you know why because he's like I want five more Big Sunday league energy. Yeah, like I want five more. Like he really loves accumulating. And this is why I think he's been never too fussed about elegance or how everything looks because he's just like, get the damn thing done. He's transitioned to games behind closed doors probably easier than any other footballer because he never celebrates to the crowd anyway. Actually, we had a great chat with uh, the great Dembo, Stefan Ursfeld, and he had made a great comment about this. He said he has benefited more than anyone from these ghost games, what they call in Germany, Geisterspieler, because... You can hear every single instruction mm. as someone on his team. You know, sometimes in a crowd, in a stadium where the crowd is so loud, it's hard to make everything out. But in a case like this, you can hear absolutely everything. And actually, I think he said, Stefan was also saying that other, you know, so spectators can hear just how influential Muller is, just how yeah. important he is. Yeah, I mean, he's been 
incredible for Bayern Munich this season. He's been incredible for Bayern Munich for a long time. This is one of the major things that Hansi Flick deserves praise for is kind of re-unlocking yeah. Thomas Muller because you can see that he's such a unicorn of a player he thrives on chaos. It, yes, he does. But the, the weird thing about the chaos he requires is... He doesn't require it. He just thrives off it. He, he, yeah, he does. He does. And what's weird about him, I remember um, thinking about the most impressive Bayern performance I've ever seen, which is the first half against Juve in the Champions League a few years back when Bayern went 2-0 up mm. and they were mind-blowingly good and Muller was in the centre of everything and Pep had basically pushed nine outfield players into the final third and Vidal was basically the sweeper at one point. It was, un- it was wild. It was one of those ones mm. where you look at a Pep team and go like, where, <laughs> what is the formation? And it was just attack as it turned out. And Muller was just in the tightest spaces destroying everyone and everything. And it's like, as long as you give Muller his little box of tricks on the edge of the box. As long as you give him his like allocate, it's like, you know what it is? It's, you know how Germans love their allotments? Muller mm. has like this allotment, which is like five yards back from the penalty area and not more than 15 yards closer to the sort of touch lines. And that's just his little allotment. And you give him that and he will eat everything. Yeah, dude, um, he's a master pickpocket. You step yeah. into that space and he's got your watch. Like, yeah, you don't exactly. even notice. Exactly. He's just such a unique player. I mean, this isn't anything, this isn't rocket science we're talking about here. It's stuff that has been well known and well documented for years. But I just thought that these kind of games really demonstrate just how good Thomas Muller is, you know, because like you said in your piece, this isn't a flat trap bully. No. He will go into your back garden in a World Cup semi-final and demolish you. Yeah. Then obviously the Alaborone goal, then it kind of went a little bit quiet for a quarter of an hour before kicking back into life. It did. And at that point, during that quarter of an hour, Messi had a shot straight at Neuer and felt slightly reminiscent of 2014, where it was almost like, at one point, I didn't see anyone else other than Messi was either going to score or assist. Like, mm. this is the problem with Barca. You look at it and go, like, there's a moment when Messi, uh, Jonathan Fisher made a great, um, a great comment. He said, there was nothing more symptomatic, I think, of Barcelona's defeat the fact that Messi hits three perfect crosses in the first 15 minutes and they all fail to find their target because everyone else is waiting for someone else to leap at it. Yeah, the one that hit the post, I thought was, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but when that happened, I thought that's big. Literally, someone just needed to get a hair on that. Yeah. And it goes in. It was painful to watch because from that point, you were like, that. yeah, you're like, that, that chance is gone. Is it the spell? The spell broke at that point mm. and, Bar- and Bayern were like, they don't have anything to hurt us with. And they then, and the thing about Bayern, of course, especially this Hansi Flicks Bayern, which is, you know, an outstandingly coached team already. And he's done an amazing job. Is that they will punish you and they continued punishing. I, I did actually say, I said last um, week and the great Sid Lowe replied to me, uh, I said, if Kike Setien doesn't level up, then this could be as bad as the 2013 defeat, the seven nil over two legs. Mm. Uh, and Sid replied, well, I'm not sure that as much Setien can do at this point. No, no, I agree. I want to talk about Kimmich's goal. Right. By this point, it was 4-2 before yep. Joshua Kimmich. This is the one that got memed because of Alfonso Davies, yep. who I thought was really impressive throughout yes. the game. He had this moment against Nelson Semedo on the right-hand side, which Twitter erupted. I just think it's really poor defending. Of course. And, I, and, I'm, a massive, and I'm a massive Nelson Semedo fan, but I think... You, he is literally facing square. He's, he's square on to, to, yeah. to Alfonso Davis there. And his ankles showing him together. in no way. Yeah. His ankles are together and he's given him eight yards, nine yards, 10 yards of touchline. Yeah. It's like, show your body one way and show him towards a direction and you don't get memed. If you still get memed, then fair play. But at least you're giving yourself the absolute best chance not to get memed. Do you know it's quite weird? That's why I didn't tweet about it. Do you know why? Because... I saw his body language and thought, this isn't, this is not Danielson in the early stages of the World Cup. This isn't some master like Drew. This isn't Savicevic. It's not. It's basically a player whose confidence is absolutely shattered, who was out on the right wing and isolated. Because if you look at what happened with Semedo earlier in that game, you have that huge gap between PK and oh. Semedo. There's a gap of about 20 yards between the first half. There's a massive gap between Semedo and PK. I've been watching Semedo a bit this season. He finds it really difficult to play out from the back. He can't do the combination play stuff, mm. right? And it's almost like they expect it to be Danny Alves with the kind of angles they create for him. And this is the thing, passing angles, right? 
Frankie de Jong, the amount of times Frankie de Jong was surrounded by three players and had no passing option. And at one point he has the ball and has like three, four seconds on the ball. And he's like, you know what? And just goes back to the keeper because there's nothing. This is something I think happened all game though. And I think this was the biggest takeaway I had from this was the fact that you look at the peak Barcelona sides or you just look at the good Barcelona sides of the last decade, not even necessarily the 2011 side. They always played like they had an extra man on the pitch. Yeah. They were so close together in possession. On Friday, there was a point where Messi got the ball and there were five Bayern players closer to him than any single Barcelona player. They're so used to getting bailed out by someone. Yes. That no one offers to help. It's not a team anymore, Barcelona, I don't think. They don't play like a team. Super horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Because the Davies moment was foreshadowed by the first half. I saw that moment coming. I was like, you know, he's so isolated. Semedo's trying to play out the back. And playing out from the back when you're not a confident team is a parody of itself very quickly, right? And so it looked a parody. It looked a parody of itself. So the entire, the entire game, Semedo had been isolated. And all of a sudden he's against Davies. He knows Davies is quick. He knows he's left space. And there's that moment where he knows he's already doomed. And I was, there's actually, it's, it's interesting because during the entire game, I tweeted a lot. Here's one thing I didn't do. I did not tweet the, the name of a single Barcelona player. And that was because as pathetic as it sounds, subconsciously, I was like, I, I, want, I don't want to be part of the pile-on. Mm. This is a collective failure and I don't want to be in a situation where I'm singling out individuals. And like, it's really, really bad when you're feeling sorry for multi-millionaire athletes. But I felt mm. so much sympathy. There is, the isolation of Barcelona players was absolutely horrific. Antoine Griezmann came on and promptly disappeared. This was something I thought was really strange. You know, we've talked about Setien before and we kind of agree it's not really his fault. Right. Because it's been something that has been coming for a while, which maybe we'll touch on in a bit. But this is where I think he got something majorly wrong. He was playing this 4-4-2 and then he brought Griezmann on left side. Where has Antoine Griezmann played his best club football? As a second striker in a 4-4-2. With a mobile nine, with a strong and mobile nine. Yeah. If you're going to make that tweak, why push him even further away from his sweet spot than he's been playing all season out as left of a front three anyway? in a game like that where you need goals. This was something I thought was majorly disappointing from Setien. Can I be honest with you? I can't name a single player on that team. I can't name a, apart from even Messi and Suarez, and that's not even that clear now. I can't name you too many players on that team that enjoy combining with other players. I couldn't tell you who Frankie de Jong, maybe Me- Frankie de Jong and Messi have got a good connection, but I can't name, I couldn't name you more than three sets of good connections on that team. And the one positive I hope that comes from this game is that people finally accept what those Bundesliga teams have been dealing with and just what an incredible fight they put up against this Bayern team, even with a slow start Bayern had, because this team is brutal. I know they found their feet relatively late in the season, but still, the fact that Gladbach, Dortmund and Leipzig made it that much of a contest for that long against a team this good, I don't know, that says a lot. That says a lot for the teams that they, they, they overtook in the Bundesliga. It says a lot for them. A lot of people like to slate the Bundesliga. And I'd say probably what, La Liga is the second most popular behind the Premier League. Yeah. But everyone's kind of been dealt with. Like even Leipzig, without their top scorer this season, did a job. Yeah. And they finished, what, third? Yeah, like you say, people are now starting to understand just how good Bayern are. Yes, there are problems in the Bundesliga, but this isn't like some kind of half our side winning the Bundesliga every year. This is a absolute juggernaut of a side. Yeah, they try. People try. People really try to stop this team. Yeah. Ter Stegen, I've got to say, if we're going to be critical, I mean, his passing was, was really poor. Um, one of the Twitter accounts, at Barcelev, um, great follow, just for football and also for politics really as well, pointed this out and just said, you know, I've been critical of his passing all season and getting criticism and slated for it, but it's not been the strongest. And I think, unfortunately, when the collective is poor, then everything breaks down. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Pique came away and Pique was almost, and I said this to you actually uh, recently as well, Pique came off the field and was very distraught and gave this post-match interview. And I looked at him in that kind of horrible patchwork quilt checkerboard Barcelona shirts. And I thought to myself, there you go. That right there, that, that Barcelona shirt is like a metaphor. It's like a tapestry for the amount with which the board have tampered with something that wasn't broken. They tried to fix something that wasn't broken. And you said this actually, you made a great point about 2015. I know we're mm-hmm. going slightly off the pitch now, but. Well, now let's, yeah, let's go, let's go there. Cause we've been with, we, disclaimer, there have been three podcasts in the last few weeks where we have 
cut bits out about Barcelona to save it for this moment. So let's go. And the frustrating thing, before we go any further, and those listening, it's because we care and because it's important. It's like a strong Barcelona Mm. run well is really important for football. This is why I think we go on about stuff like Barcelona. They're not the Barcelona of old. There is no Cruyffian figure there currently who has the authority to go in and just make changes. But even though Bartomeu has been there for a decade now and the board that are in place have largely been there for a decade, decisions that were being made in 2010, 2011 and even 2012 didn't cause an 8-2 against Bayern Munich in 2020. No. There were glimpses, but the real key thing, thing for me comes in January 2015 when Zubi Zaretta leaves and therefore Puyol leaves after him. Two extremely key players in that club and now key personnel within that football club. Barcelona go and win the treble five months after Zubi Zaretta gets fired. The board would have taken credit for that and it bought them enough goodwill to last them about 18 months before they then really started to do damage. And it's really been coming since 2015, 2016. Yeah, I think. Absolutely. The acceleration of the erosion of any kind of plan or any kind of identity in that football club ramped up after that Champions League in 2015. And that's what caused the 8-2, I think. I completely agree. That's when the transfer stuff started going wild. The Coutinho, Griezmann, Dembele trilogy, if you like, is the one. Now, I feel a little bit for Dembele because I think that if he hadn't had injuries, I do think he would be in that Barca side. I agree. The fact that Coutinho, who they didn't need to buy anyway, was on loan and scored two against them, sums up the ineptitude of the board right there. That's all you need to know. Yeah, no, the fact, the fact that no one even negotiated a, t- a clause in the contract to say someone on loan can't play against us. Yeah, and then the Griezmann thing, if you're going to sign someone like that for that kind of money who has thrived in a very specific system for a long, long time, why go and chuck them out somewhere that they don't play? It's just completely pointless. You know, it's weird. These board members, you wonder how much time they spend around actual football people. And you wonder if they just actually sacked anyone that would have a difficult conversation with them. And I said this to you, like the, one of the most heartbreaking things from a football perspective was seeing Zubizarreta's comments when he got sacked and he said, I just wanted a chance to finish the work we had started. Mm. And it was devastating for him. He's now at Marseille, right? Who are turning around. Yeah, exactly. And a brilliant Barcelona rebuild, to be honest with you. I'm not sure exactly what it would look like, but it would involve him in some capacity. Whether or not he's made peace with his departure, I don't know. But that is someone who has some form of role in your club going forward. They have to get the band back together. The thing about the Barcelona situation at the moment is that with the right people there, it doesn't actually need a massive rebuild. They have the tools. They have a lot of tools. They just need to do some spring cleaning, basically. But the problem is that the people who are there to make the decisions, there is zero faith that any of them will make those smart, small decisions in order to create larger benefits going forward. Yeah. They don't have the joined up thinking that was there when they got rid of big stars and brought through those youth prospects because they have players there. Ricky Pooch, Ansu Fati. These young players are good enough to be starting games. If Barcelona do not give Frankie de Jong the keys to that midfield next season, that'll be the fourth one on that transfer failing list. Because you have got a guy there who is an absolute generational talent, captain material, who was dominating midfield. He went to the Bernabeu and he absolutely ran the show. At what, 20 years old, 21 years old? Mind-blowing. You don't need to get rid of Busquets entirely, but you need to reconfigure his role, I think. Use Busquets as a closer. Yeah. Or use him to start games against lesser opposition. And that's fine because I'm sure he's humble enough to accept that. He's been humble enough to accept second billing most of his career. I think actually, and I know that he's had, you know, I think, you know, we've criticised his move to Qatar. Xavi has to have a role in the rebuild. I think he has to, he has to. And I'm not sure that Pochettino is the right person for that club. I know there's a lot of talk about him. I think politically it doesn't work. It's, It's really bad because every bad result that Pochettino has, and there will be bad results in the early stages, there would be certainly while he gets his philosophy in place you'd have Chavi whispering in the background. Yeah, but also Poch came out saying that he, he, he's waiting for the perfect club with the perfect project. Barcelona aren't any of those two things. No, and I think Chavi has the nows to execute a proper rebuild. I think he would go into that squad and look at it and assess the footballing capabilities really, really well. And he's someone they would instantly listen to. And that mm. right now, 
And I think he's very aware of his political leverage. I mean, there was a comment he came out with just recently, you know, just a few hours ago, he was like, oh, it's not the right time, not the right time. I kind of like the way he's played that because mm. that is a gangster political move. And this sounds a bit dramatic, but I was thinking about this yesterday about what Messi might do next. And to be honest with you, I said this on Twitter, I was only half joking. What if Messi retires? Only because, have we underestimated Messi's love for Barcelona and all this? I think we have. Because this is a guy, and I, someone tweeted, oh yeah, like whenever Messi, Messi's future is miraculously in doubt and then things get sorted. No, they don't actually. This is no. the thing. Messi's never really flexed because if he did flex, we'd have completely different players in that Barcelona team. If he really went and was like, here's my list of demands, he's never really done it. And I genuinely believe that when he's been frustrated about things, that's a genuine frustration. And his talk of wanting to leave, everyone's going, he might go somewhere else. Actually, look where he might go. Messi loves Barcelona. Like he, he loves his kids. He loves his dog. He loves his wife. He loves his life. And he's basically like off the grid in, but he loves Barcelona. Why the hell would he leave? Right? So then you think about relocating. Where would he go? That's a good fit for him. Bayern would be a good fit. No, but if Muller's there and Muller's brilliant. City, City are not a great fit for him. I don't think at this point. United are not ready for him. I don't actually see any good fits. What if Messi looks around and goes, actually, I've got nothing to prove. I'm done with this. What, what, why wouldn't that be a possibility? I mean, it's not, I, don't think it, I don't think it's not a possibility. Do you know what I mean? And I, I don't want to say that, but I thought about it yesterday and I thought to myself, hang on a minute, like he has watched a club that he loves, that he grew up, that he trained with, that helped him so much his entire career. He's done all these things, all this great glory. And he's like, can I see it happening again? Can I see it happening again at Barca? And if no, then, I mean, this is the guy that wants to leave a year before the end of his contract. And we know that money's not a thing to him, but I think honour is a thing to him. Messi at the moment is, he's not angry, he's disappointed. And that's bad. Disappointed is bad because that's when the rot has set in. Champions League is where Barcelona want to thrive. And they haven't looked anywhere close since 2015. And that is Messi's World Cup. That's, that's, that's yeah. half a decade. Yeah. Like, think about that. You have wasted half a decade of probably the greatest player of all time. It's unforgivable, Musa. It's, it's absolutely unforgivable. Unfor and this is the thing. This is, the, this is what happens when you get overly political within the football club in terms of hierarchy because it's just a game. And yeah, football is literally a game, but running it isn't. This, this means, I don't want to quote Liverpool fans, but this means more to a lot of people than it does to them. And they're just fucking around. We both love football so much, right? To the point where we sometimes get a little bit overly whimsical about it. Stories are so important in this sport. Yeah. We all recall things from back in the day when we were kids or, you know, the four classicos of 2011. I will go back and watch that or talk about that for years and years and years and years because it was honestly one of the greatest footballing moments. I've one of the greatest footballing months in my lifetime. That couldn't happen now. No. And this is where I get really sad about it. And I'm not a Barcelona fan at all, but everything that could have happened, the possibilities, the potentials, the like, the sporting brilliance with probably the greatest player of all time at its center has just been completely wasted. Everyone who's watched The Last Dance recently, imagine if the second three-peat never happened. Is it still the same story? No, it's not. And that's basically what we're going through now. This is like Jordan without the second three-peat. And you know what's awful about it? I think you've put it perfectly. What, what is so upsetting about this is it mirrors what's happening in wider society, which is that money and arrogance have ruined so much. They've ruined the thing that people escape into every weekend. You look at those traumatic Champions League defeats that Barcelona have suffered to Liverpool, to Roma, you know, and, and now to, to Bayern. And you look at it and just go, it's the shamelessness of it. Mm. The fact that these people, these directors ultimately have no sense of shame. And it's class actually, Ryan. It relates to class because yeah, ultimately- 100% of class thing. These players grew up working class. And this is what's funny about PK because PK straddles that. PK straddles the boardroom and the and, 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 the, and the pitch. So he's almost, he's someone that has to be integral to the solution. And Piquet at this point has a huge amount of cultural capital he has to bring to bear, I think, or will over time. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, those directors, day in, day out, week in, week out, looked at those players in the pitch and specifically Messi, they're like, oh, Messi will bail it out. And they went and they dined out on that. And they, they, they quite literally dined out on the fact that they, when they were in their meetings with their sponsors, their commercial partners, the little away trips. Oh, the Barcelona president. Oh, the Barcelona director. Oh, you have Messi. Can you get a shirt signed for Messi? You are stuffing the golden goose. 
and feeding none of its friends. And this is what gets me. You look at that 2015 final. Imagine if you've gone up to Messi right then. You know that, that sort of that famous story about how um, there's that, that person that stands next to the remote, the Roman emperor and goes, all glory is fleeting, all glory is fleeting. Imagine if you said to Messi at 2015, after that incredible final, Barcelona top of the footballing universe, and he said, you know what, you're never going to come this close again. He looked to you in shock. And year by year, he has had to watch the team be dismantled and fall apart. And the only person he can really look at from those days is PK and be like, dude, and Busquets and be like, what the hell? Not even Busquets, I don't think. I think PK more so. But I, yeah. I think if you think about those two players, when they started coming through, they played for a club that classed themselves as so special that no brand was worthy of being on the front of the club football shirt. Yeah. No matter the money. Yeah, exactly. And like, and I hope Barcelona fans listen to this and be like, ah, these people are passionate because there's, there's an ideal of what the club should be, right? Just as there's a way that, you know, I'm a writer, I love crafting a sentence or a paragraph a particular way. There's a way to do a thing, right? And if you forget why you're doing it, and I think too many people close to it have forgotten why they're doing it. And this is not just Barcelona. This is symptomatic of, you know, challenges at Arsenal right now. Amazing essay on The Athletic by James McNicholas about the way Arsenal's being run. That's a separate point. But, you know, that rot extends so deep. But it, unfortunately, Barcelona are the kind of metaphor for the wider problem with football. Yeah, totally. This is the thing. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's Barcelona. It doesn't matter if it's Real Madrid or anything. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, there's two things here for me. And again, I know that this sounds like a little bit idealistic and a little bit naive, but I just don't think Barcelona are a prime example of this. People at the top of a lot of modern super clubs have no idea or awareness of the responsibility that they have, have been given. The whole of that Barca board should just be fired. Yeah. Because it's on them. It's on them and it's been like this for years. Like we said before, you don't need to bring the whole thing down and rebuild from the ground up because they still have the tools there at Barca with some smart business and some smart decision-making. You could actually see them go deep in the Champions League next season. Yep. The problem is the only people who are stopping that from happening are unfortunately the people who are in charge of the fucking football club. Absolutely. We should probably take a break, huh? Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, we're back from the break. And before we move on to some other stuff, I want to ask a question. We had this one from Rosario222 on Twitter. He said, I had a dream last night that I was playing football with Musa. Oh, my, my sympathies. He had a perfect header that played me through, but I scuffed my shot. He was very upset. <laughs> what are Ryan and Musa's personalities on the pitch like? Now, I can't comment here because I've not seen you play. I mean, I've not been on the pitch for a while. but Me neither, God. I get really angry at myself. I don't shout at teammates, actually. I get really angry at myself. So if I miss chances, I go nuclear. And it's like I have this rage and the rage is only satisfied once I've scored. And it's strange because football is the one place where it's like, because you're letting the team down. I do a lot of things that are quite solitary. I make music I well, I, with people, but fundamentally I, I write, I do whatever. I'm quite a solitary character. So everything I do, success or failure is on me, right? Should have been and a it, golfer. Yeah, so when, so when, exactly. So when you're part of a team collective and you let someone down with a missed chance, then you're like, I have to make up for this. I have to do right by my team. So actually, a lot of the time playing football, I derived a lot of joy from goal scoring, but also rage and not, also, not always that much pleasure. Like I could score maybe a couple of goals. And I think about like, for example, there's a game I played. Here's a good example. We beat University College when I was at uni. We beat them 5-1 and I scored four goals. And I can still remember... And Greg McClymont will tell you there's a chance I missed at one all where I got a good chance outside and I spooned it into the keeper's hands. And I never forgave myself for that miss, even after scoring later. Like even now, I can tell you more about the miss than I can about the other goals that I scored. This is like, what, 20 years later and I still remember the missed chance. Get over it, man. 
you say that, but he it's made four. me he's so greedy. But that's the but Pass like, first striker, my ass. Shout out to Duncan Holland for the great assist, the final assist. Shout out to Duncan, the great, the great Duncan Holland. Um, I'm trying to think what my personality is on the pitch. Like I talk a lot because I play centre midfield, so I'm very chatty. Keep everyone calm. I get really annoyed at myself when I miss when I misplace passes, and I'm quite protective of my teammates. Actually, yeah, because yeah. we play, for, we both play for international sides. So there, there's a lot of guys whose German is even worse than mine when we play. So if someone starts mouthing off to them in German, I'll just try and step in, check my boys. What was the game you came to see me play? That was when we were playing in all white, right? Was that did the you, one? Did, did you score I, a free kick? No, I scored. Did you score three in that one? No, no, I didn't. I didn't see the hat. You didn't game. see my hat trick. No, no, my first half hat trick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my goodness. Um, Ryan running the show, scoring the goals. To be honest, <laughs> probably poor keeping. There was one. I, there was one I scored in that game from about thirty-five yards out, and as soon as I hit it. I was like, this is going miles over the bar. And then it dipped. Oh my God. <laughs> I just went top corner. I was like, holy shit. Um, no, the one you, yeah, I scored and assisted in the one that you came to. That was That's the one right. with, shout out to Ed McCambridge. I think it was like, he set me up and I set him up. Um, anyway, enough about our I know one thing before, before, before I forget, one thing you do, what's interesting about the way you play is you stand side on to the action. Like you're on the half turn a lot. So there were times you've got, you've got to be ready to go both ways. Yeah, you say that, but people don't always... The first, the first time I ever played centre midfield, I was, it was terrifying. It was like, I know I've used the traffic control analogy, but it was like being, <laughs> it was like someone lowered me onto a roundabout and then switched off all the traffic lights and the cars all zooming around. And everyone's like, hey, Musa, just come over and like get some, I was like, no, I, I can't cross. It's like playing chicken. Yeah, it could be and a busy place midfield. So, so my body positioning was completely wrong. Whereas you obviously been playing for a while, but the way you did it also was like, you had this thing where you were like, I remember there's one moment you, you pulled out towards the touchline, you were just like standing like back to the kind of crowd and like just looking like either way. It's like, yeah, that's maximum vision, just kind of like making, making room. Making room, well, making you know, room for maybe. teammates. I didn't play it all last season. I was <laughs> injured for all of it. So <laughs> let's move on to some football stuff. And I want to talk about Rose Lavelle. So re- before we get on to the rest of the Champions League games and obviously Manchester United, Sevilla, uh, so O.L. Reign have acquired the rights to Rose Lavelle in the NWSL from the Washington Spirit. This trade was made, obviously, understanding that Rose Lavelle is about to sign for a European club, which has turned out to be Manchester City on a one-year contract. Shouts to Meg Linehan. She reported that in The Athletic. We had a question on this from Jess Malone, soccer sabbatical. What will replace the Rose Lavelle-sized hole in my heart now that she's off to O.L. Reign? Sorry, Jess. Not a lot, especially, I think Jess has just bought a Washington Spirit shirt. I'm not sure if she got Rose Lavelle on the back or not, but... Oh, no. Oh, I no. Know. Oh, no. I, 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 Jess, I'm really sorry. Um, you can't. It's, it's done. It's gone and it's fine. Just enjoy what it was. Enjoy it for what it was because... <sighs> I'm just really sad she's off to City. She's a unique player as well. She's, that's the thing. There aren't players. There's no one else I've seen. I've been watching the, you know, those games that, that moves like her. There isn't. Mm. I think you have to find a new idol. Sorry about that. The interesting thing will be if after her year at Man City and she goes back to, well, she goes to OL Reign, whether she will potentially go on loan to Lyon, their parent club, aren't they? And Lyon maybe want to freshen up just a little bit, maybe. Mm. You, know, just, you know what I mean? They've got um, Gunnar Zetir there, Lavelle there would be a really nice like, combo to bring over the next two years. And maybe this one year at City is just about sort of dipping a toe in the water and seeing how Europe feels. Yeah, City are looking dangerous. They are looking so dangerous. I mean, with their new signings next season, I can't see anyone stopping them in the league, to be honest. Scary, scary. From Man City women to Man City men. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, poor Guardiola. I don't know why I'm saying poor Guardiola because a lot, a lot of people seem to have much sympathy for Pep during times like this. But I kind of do a little bit here. So Man City won, Leon three. Pep wanted it too much. I got a little bit of stick for this because I went on Twitter and said, you know, Pep is someone who's maybe haunted by his early success or his early brilliance, you know, and I, I compared it to like someone who writes an incredible novel as a debut and then spends years trying to live up to that, recapture that. And some people thought that was really harsh, but his own players didn't seem to think it was that harsh because there's a great essay by Sam Lee in The Athletic, an investigation of this defeat. And then basically saying like, 
we've got a system we understand and we play if we play well, but then why does he change it? Like, why are we adapting so much to them? And there's so much to learn. There's so much, so much in a short space of time. And, you know, shout out to Grace on football. Grace um, said, I feel like because Guardiola was so smart as a player at adapting tactically, he thinks his players can. It's not always the way. And it looked confusing. And ultimately, like as brilliant as Leon were, and they were brilliant, let's not doubt that. If you play a brilliant Leon team, who are also a bit better rested than you are, which is a factor, but City have a big squad. Absolutely, yeah. So, so, so if you play a brilliant Leon team at 70% of your potential, they will beat you. And that's what happened. And unfortunately, you know, I, I tweeted this as well. I said, City's most dangerous asset against Real Madrid was their front three. And they played without it for almost an hour of that game. And the moment that Mares came on, it was instantly more dangerous. There was instantly more space for City. And they looked at that point as if they might go on to take the thing. Um, and, you know, they went, you know, Leon had the 3-5-2. Shout out to Hassam Awa, who was brilliant again. Cornet as well was brilliant. Cornet was again, brilliant. Dembele as well. They kept testing Denea in that channel as if they were expecting to get some change from him, but they didn't. They, what, with the exception of Sterling beating him for the cutback for De Bruyne's goal, he did not give them a sniff the entire 90 minutes and they attacked relentlessly down the left-hand side. Mm. And the biggest criticism of any Champions League team at this stage is that they're predictable and they became predictable. And you look at the talent they had on the bench, you look at the brilliance of Foden in the previous tie and I just thought to myself, and this is the thing, people go, oh, like you always say Pepper's overthinking, but he himself said that. He himself said that. Like when Real beat, um, destroyed Bayern over two legs, one nil in one game, but then four nil in the, in the um, second leg. He said it himself that he got the tactics wrong. I think the really interesting thing about this is that you look at the bench, Phil Foden doesn't come off the bench, Bernardo Silva doesn't come off the bench and David Silva comes off with six minutes to go. That's weird. Manchester City, I don't think should be making adjustments to counter Lyon. They shouldn't be doing it. I wonder what role Arteta has in this. I wonder if... I don't, like, Arteta is a brilliant tactical mind, but we hear so much about how strong-willed he is. I wonder if there's a moment or a conversation or a universe in which Arteta says, stick to your guns, Pep. I don't even know if he overthought it. I think he was afraid. I'm kind of on the fence about it, to be honest. I think it's weird how he did it, but the game still swung on three really, really key moments, I think, all of which went against Manchester City. So I think the second goal is ludicrous that is given. I cannot understand how that's given. Because like, they're literally playing a ball to someone who's offside, who then leaves it. And then the guy who it ends up falling to trips up a player. There is no way that that goal should have stood. Agreed. No way. So then it's still 1-1. And you don't have this, like, the mental kind of impact of, oh no, we've been done by VAR again. Right. Then you have the Sterling miss, which happens. I, I cannot, I'm not even getting into anything about Raheem Sterling as a finisher because it's just one of those things, it happens. People miss chances sometimes. If that had come in a game where Man City had won 3-1, no one would be talking about that this week. You know, Manchester City had 10 chances. They still could have won the game. The Edison error was the third one. I think weirdly out of the three, I think that was the biggest kicker. Horrible mistake. It just Horrible. wasn't a difficult one for him. Yeah. And those three things, they don't happen because Pep quote unquote overthought. They just right. happen anyway. Yep. 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 So what I'm saying is I, I get that it's really, really easy to go after Pep for overthinking and doing this and doing this. And yeah, his, his team selection was strange and I don't think it was needed. However, I still think they did enough to win the game. Okay, look, I agree with that. And I still think, I think if Sterling scores, they go on to win. Because I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, it was so weird. Yeah. When City equalised, I looked and I thought, I just don't see where Leon's second goal is coming from. Mm. I didn't see the next goals coming from. City were creating space and chances more easily. And just on Sterling's miss, he has had a really traumatic relationship with the Champions League the last three years. Mm. Left out against Liverpool in the first leg has, I think, the, the late, the disallowed equaliser against Spurs last year that would have taken them through, it was ruled out, and then this miss. These are three defining career moments for Sterling. And mentally, mentally he's strong. So if there's any player that could sustain these losses, you, it's him and you wouldn't worry about him to that extent. But just the way he crouched his body over the ball before it came in 
And that was not the body of a man at ease, like the way he came onto it. Cause it was like, you know, it was an open goal. Yes. The ball arrived so quickly, but it's the tension. And this is not calling him a bottler. It's not that. It's saying the very real pressure of that stage. There's a moment when Guardiola was on his knees in the dugout. You notice that. Mm. You see that and you think to yourself, the tension, the stress is so palpable. If you've got two legs to play against Leon, I mean, there's a part of Pep that must have been a little bit, felt a little bit sick when he saw the single leg knockout. Because I do think that for all his challenges in the Champions League, I still think he prefers the two leg format because it gives you a chance to get it right. It's like the first leg is a draft. It's a rough draft. And the second yeah, leg, you get it right. You can work through your plans. And I think he likes that process. You know, let's try mm. things out. It's very discursive. It's like writing an essay, getting edits back from the editor and then doing the final draft. This became so arbitrary, so random. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I agree. One last thing I'll say on that. It's very important, I think, who City recruit next as a centre forward. Because here's the thing. A centre forward that wins you games you don't deserve mm. is what they needed in that match. And I love Gabriel Jesus as a footballer. I think he's brilliant. I also think that maybe this is a moot point. You need a player that wins your games you don't deserve. And I know Aguero is injured, so that's a big caveat. So no disrespect to City fans. And I know, you know, I know I'm a United fan. I'm not having a go. It's more like the next centre forward that City sign, I think, is, is a really important one. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Maybe they'll just sign Messi. Play him as an eight. <laughs> oh my goodness. So props to Leon who have knocked out Juventus and now Manchester City. Wow. That is some going. So, are you looking forward to a RB Leipzig Leon final? <laughs> yes, actually yes, because I think it's a coach's final. I think from that perspective, it's such a co- like Shout out to Rudy What's Garcia. That, hey, that's not going to happen. Isn't it? It seems like it happened forever ago, but obviously RB Leipzig put out Atleti, which meant that we were one and three for our predictions. So the only one we got right was the Bayern one. Yeah. But boy, did we get it right, that one. Maybe on aggregate we won. And also I did call it as being, it, it could be potentially a historic massacre. Mm, well done. I said that on Twitter, so at least I can take some credit for that. Well done. Moostradamus. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Rilo Ren and Mustradamus. What was my other one that I came up with the other day? Oh, Ryan Man. Ryan Man. When you inhabit when the character. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan Man. Inhabit the character. Um, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll do the rest of the games. Yep, yep. All right, back from the break for our final part. Right, as mentioned before, RB Leipzig to Atletico Madrid won. Newly Nagelsmann with big football manager energy here. Yes playing 3-3-3-1, which I was really into. <laughs> Nagelsmann has a previous for stuff like this, though. There was a great uh, 4-2-2-2 that he played at one point this season as well. I love that. Leipzig. I love yeah. that. This is the genius of Nagelsmann. So he lost Timo Werner and still beat Atleti. And what's really striking about this, and one thing we can say, every coach that won in this round was rewarded for their bravery. I agree. You know, because they ultimately, like, love Atalanta, love them, love them. Try to play containment football for the last half hour. They looked exhausted, quite frankly, as well. I mean, yeah. But Leipzig, I think the Leipzig result was more remarkable because they have fewer resources. Lost him than the top scorer. And this is the genius of Nagelsmann. He's a systems guy. So you lose a player as good as Werner, but you can have other players coming in and doing great tactical, tactical jobs. And mm. I think a great indictment of his quality is, I don't know many other coaches in world football who would have got that result against Spurs with those performances and beating this Atleti team. Because when Joao Felix came on, Atleti looked like they were going to like stroll away with this at a certain point. They looked, they Why were, didn't he start? I don't get that. Well, I think again, can I be honest with you again? Fear. This tournament has a psychological hold on Simeone. The players spoke before the game of being desperate to win it for him. This weighed heavily on him and on the players. And what did he do? He went with his tried and tested. What was tried and tested was wrong because look at the, th the things, this is what frustrates me, okay? What, tried and tested? Was, was, was Thomas Partey injured? Well, I don't know if he was. He was on the bench, but can I say what annoyed me about this? The things that worked against Liverpool, one of the great Champions League victories, right? He squandered one of the great victories. What worked well? Joao Felix from the very start, mm. stretching the defence. And then you had Costa. Costa wasn't the best and Costa has not been Costa for a long time. I mean, he scored, what, 11 goals in 5,000 minutes since he returned. Um, why you don't start Joao Felix and Morata? And then why you play Marcos Llorente as a 10 
when he's brilliant arriving from deep. A joke about number eight. He is a quintessential eight and you play him as a 10. So you don't give him room to explode into. You put him in the room already. You make it easy. And I said this at the start of the game. I was looking going, this is wild. Okay, this is wrong. This is wrong. But it's Simeone. What do I know? And I'm like, when a brilliant tactician is making mistakes that even someone who does a podcast that if East Berlin can spot a mistakes, then something is wrong. And at that point, it's not tactical, it's psychological. Mm. And I know that, you know, I, you know, Nagelsmann did a brilliant job, but even Nagelsmann will look across and be like, I'm not sure I would have done that in your position. Joao yeah. Felix came on and was astonishing. There was one period, it's like a five minute period where he beat everyone on a dribble that he attempted. Mm. Everyone. You don't need you don't need to give Julian Nagelsmann any legs up. No, you re- leg up. You really don't. And I think they did. You know, and I don't think uh, I think Jan Oblak wasn't at his absolute best either, which kind of helped them. Yeah. But you just look at the players that stayed on the bench against Bratleti. You know, Thomas Partey, Thomas Lamar, who hasn't had the wildest season, I know, but still, I think they've really made it hard for themselves, Atleti. And I think there's conversation. There's a conversation that probably needs to be had around Simeone and Atleti now. I think. I think it's Pochettino is the perfect job for that. I think he's, sorry, yeah. I think Poch is the perfect person for that job because I think if he went to Atleti, you already have the defensive heft taken care of. You yeah. have the pressing intensity. You basically just need to unlock the final third. And with the attacking talent, that is a playground. You're working with Felix and Lamar and Maratta, who are brilliant. Like Maratta is amazing as a secondary talent in a strike force. If you basically had him as a linking 10, basically Murata is like the new, the new Giroud, I think. In terms of like, he's Giroud with a bit more mobility. He's a link man whose primary gifts are not necessarily in goal scoring, but in bringing other players into the fold. I just think it's a Poch job. And I, and Do you know what? I think Poch is a massive shout for Atleti. I'd rather see Poch at Atleti than at Barca. Me too. Much rather. And I think it'd be a better fit for him, personally. I think if he went to Atleti, Zidane has a major problem for the league title like huge problem because I, mean, I think I, to be honest, I think Barcelona and Real Madrid have got problems of their own anyway. They do, but look at this season. 27 goals conceded in 38 games in La Liga. Mm-hmm. And they scored what I think 51 at Leti. All you have to do is unlock mm-hmm. the front line. That's all you have to do. Yeah. That's a massive shout. So that's the Champions League. Yeah. Uh, we had a couple of questions on the Champions League from Johan Ackerson. I hope I pronounced that right. Is this the best, as in entertainment and narrative, Champions League knockout stage for a decade? The power of one game, one fate, and the nostalgia it offers for the fans who remember and or romanticise the European Cup. This is certainly as exciting as I can remember. It's my favourite draw. So when it first started, Mm. in its original incarnation, it was my favourite draw before Corona came along. So it was already like, wow, best in the years. And then it's gone up a notch. I can't remember the last Champions League I enjoyed this much. 2015 for me was a good one. Yeah, that was. I really enjoyed that, that knockout that, stage. That was amazing, actually. That I was mean, amazing. in the quarterfinals, then you had Juve, Monaco, Atleti, Real, PSG, Barca, Porto, Bayern. Wow, that was the, those were the quarters. That were that was great. 2013 as well was really good because that was kind of random. I mean, you had PSG, Barca, Juve, Bayern, but you had like Galatasaray, Real, and that second leg was amazing. Do you remember like Galatasaray beat Real three two at home? Oh my god, yeah. Uh, and then you had the, the amazing Dortmund-Malaga game in the quarterfinals. So those quarterfinals were great. Well, let's have another question on this um, from Alex. He said, can you see UEFA sticking with this format in years to come and establishing a sort of March Madness? No. Personally, no. no, I don't. What I think they should do though is I think they should just stick with two legs and take away away goals. When away goals aren't a factor and the clean sheet isn't so crucial and you can just go straight shoot out. Would you rather take a nil-nil draw in the home leg back home because you didn't concede an away goal or whatever, vice versa, whatever I'm trying to say, you didn't concede an away goal. Would you rather do that? Or would you rather just like win five, three at home or something? If away goals weren't there, you'd rather take a two goal advantage into a second leg, right? And this, the away goal is weird as a rule. It's weird how we've normalized something that doesn't reward bravery. It removes the incentive for bravery. That's really, really strange how we've incent- how we've Well, I mean, it was conceived at a time when the variables of where, depending on where you played, were so great that the away goal rule made sense. Whereas they're not now. It's not like that now, I don't think. So I just don't think it's, I don't think it's a factor anymore. You're saying personally. that goals should have freedom of movement. I do. 
Wow. What a stupid lefty globalist. <laughs> take back control. Take back away goals. Yeah, take away away goals. There you go. Away, away. Let's move on to your beloved Manchester United, Musa. A season very well done. Three semi-finals, third in the Premier League. It's all good. Like, it's all good. And no shame in losing to Sevilla. A smart, canny Sevilla side who understood United's strengths and then ironically used them against them. Both goals coming from stages where the game was almost broken. And interesting to see the kind of redemption arc for Luke de Jong scoring the winner for Sevilla because he really struggled in the early part of his um, time at Sevilla to score goals. So I suppose nice for him personally to get that goal. But back to United. So United, you know, we lost 2-1. Early penalty from Bruno Fernandes, astonishing penalty, hop, skip, top left corner. A gorgeous finish. The conspiracy theorists didn't like that one. Well, no, they didn't. But they're almost like, you know, well, you know, fast strikers will earn penalties. Fast strikers are quick for Jet penalty. fuel can't melt penalty spot. Yeah, exactly. It can't. Um, but what I will say is, uh, <laughs> consp- yeah, there's so many conspiracies about the penalties, but I'm like, well. They arguably could have had two more that they didn't get. They could have. Um, there was a slight sort of flashback to United's poor finishing of maybe three years ago under Van Hal, where they snatched at chances. Rashford and Martial. But also like Rashford looking exhausted and also just came back from an injury. Um, there was a bit of tiredness because the intensity United play at, that, you know, that fast-breaking style has its challenges. There's one thing I tweeted and people kind of push back on it, which is, you know, it's Twitter, so it's fair. People pushing back on Twitter? Yeah, I know. Really? I know, I know. You wouldn't believe it. United still don't have enough guys, as I said. And what I meant was, yeah. when people work out what you like doing, they will sit deep. You know, United basically love breaking. So you just reduce mm. the space they can come in behind. And I said this to you, um, I dropped a line about it late last night. I said, Man City have got a stock goal. Yep. Down the wing, cut back, finish, where the finishing is easy, right? And United, yes, they miss chances, but actually you want to create a quality of chance. You want to create the easy chances. It's not so much about missing chances, it's about taking chances out of the equation. Mm. You want to be at a point where the quality of players you have, you can walk the ball into the net. Now, there are some individual critiques we can make of, ch- of missed chances. But what I would say about United is they need to get a stock goal or a stock move against teams that sit deep against them. And What did I say United's stock goal was? <laughs> Penalties. Penalty. Oh, God. You know. Hey, where's the lie? Where's the lie? So, yeah, just United have to, you know what it is? They have to evolve because, and this is not a criticism, it's a compliment. They've been so effective at attacking this season in that style that this game, this severe game, was a trailer for what they can expect next season. So it was a really useful early warning. And, you know, Solskjaer knows this. Solskjaer brought very few people off the bench and brought them off late. Yeah. He brought them on late. weird. Well, because he knows that he doesn't have the players at the moment. We said this before. Well, we've, yeah, we said this before. Yeah. Like, yeah, the, when United were on that really great run, they were playing really, really well. Mm. Everything seemed to click. But I do think that when you start getting one or two injuries there is a huge drop-off in quality. And you saw that. I think Brandon Williams... Badly exposed for the first goal. Yeah. Really badly exposed. With people like Rashford, Martial, who are starting to look a little bit jaded. And also just poor form. Like, I think Marcus Rashford's just in a bit of a run of poor form. And I think that's understandable after what has been a very long and weird season. Right. A break will do them all the world of good and hopefully some strength and depth to reduce how much they have to use these guys and how many minutes they have to use them for because it's kind of obscene how many, you, you said it when we were WhatsApping last night, how many miles they've got on the clock already at that age. And Mason Greenwood is already clocking up those miles as well. And you can imagine if, he, if he's a starter next season or the season, that, um, well, for the next couple of seasons, how many miles he's going to have the, on the clock before he's even 20. And I saw them, I saw what I would say, Severe were really clever at showing United's attackers into areas where they had to create difficult shots. And I know Solskjaer mm. talks about missed, missed chances, but again, I come to the quality of the chances they missed. There were a lot of times where I saw United strike players having to create their own shots like in isolation. I wonder if introducing Juan Mata a little bit earlier would have been a good move because the pace of the game wasn't super rapid. It was the pace that he could have coped with. And I think he did well when he came on against Copenhagen. Yeah, And he... Yes, obviously he's not the Juan Matter of like 2012, but he still has the ability to thread passes and to make neat, intricate, creative decisions around the 18-yard box against the deep block. Like I think he just does. If you look at anyone else that Manchester United had on the pitch at that time, there's not anyone, maybe Bar Pogba, maybe Bar Fernandez, but I still think Fernandez is a little bit better in transition. But yeah. 
there was no one really like that on the pitch. And they brought him on with three minutes to go, four minutes to go. And I thought it was a little bit late. I think that Solskjaer was just concerned about taking the speed out. I think, I think, I think, I think he was like, just play fast, play fast has worked. And I think also, I think this is the nice thing about him to an extent. He backed his strikers to get the job done. Yeah, that's fair. And he said like youth, you know, youth and poor finishing cost. And I think that's actually, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. I think if United had won, it's one of those ones where it's easy to draw apocalyptic conclusions from United's yeah. defeat. And I'm not, I'm like, this thing, it's just a very good, severe team. And if you lose to them, there's no shame. And in a game like this, small margins make a difference. And small margins include Brandon Williams playing instead of Luke Shaw, whose positioning yeah. would have been better for that goal. Yeah. Um, it's small things like United scoring one of those two chances. And it's small things like, if you're a bit better at playing against teams that sit deep against you, maybe get one or two more chances. And that's it. And at the end of the day, this is a side who finished level on points with Atletico Madrid in La Liga this season. Yeah, so it's all good. It's all good. So yeah, that's that. That's that on that. Oh, before I forget, while we're talking about good coaching, stat I saw, this is the first ever time, this is back to Champions League quickly, first ever time that three coaches in the same country have been in the Champions League semi-final. Wow. And it's a great generation of coaches. Nagelsmann, Flick and Tuchel. That's a golden age. Three good coaches, huh? Yeah. I mean, three outstanding. I mean, as we say before, like, Generational talents. Strong hypotheticals. <laughs> We're going to have to start doing merch. Actually, yeah. shout out to Kenna Azuke. Kenna, I, I saw you um, tweeting at us asking, will your Stadio merch include Rolnex and cardigans? Hey, autumn winter 2020, baby. I would love, <laughs> I would love a Stadio bomber jacket with, on the back, generational talent or strong hypothetical. Or is it 2021? How cool would that be? Strong hypothetical, like... Yeah, I'm going to, uh, it's like we said, we're going to do a t-shirt that says everyone's an eight, but with number seven on the back. Yeah. <laughs> we have to do these. We have to. Yeah. Well, if you maybe like stop giving out my secrets. Sorry. We'll do it. Sorry. Stop giving, stop giving the game away, Musa. Stop <laughs> tweeting before you write the piece. <laughs> yeah. So actually, like, can I just say this? Wait, wait. Let me just name and shame the great Mash St. Paddy. Mash was like, actually, no, let me name and shame some of my editors at The Ringer. My lovely editors. Connor Nevins and Chris Ryan. Uh, I think Connor in particular. So I, I tweet this thing about, I want to write this piece about Thomas Muller, about how he seizes upon the dreams of opposition. And like he strikes, if a project seems too grand, if a football team seems too grand in its plans, that's when he strikes. That's his most deadly. Connor and Chris come running in, be like, everyone out of the water, out yeah, the water. Yeah, they're like, oh, Get out of <laughs> Moose is giving away the bag for free on Twitter. I'm like, hang on. I'm go, like, go, go, go. That's like, that's like, like it's sirens go off. <laughs> and I'm like laughing. I'm like, this is not my first rodeo. So that they, this is what happens. So they get in touch. I do the tweet. The tweet gets shared widely. And I was like, okay, but. I'm already planning to write it at this point. I've already come up with like a German name for Yeah, you're just throwing up the flair. Yeah, throwing up the flair. And then someone's like, they're going to steal. I was like, ah, 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 ah. No, they're not. And then like- Timestamped. Connor's like, yeah, exactly. Connor's like, write it. And I said to my, I said to, I said to Mash, I was like, dude, like, I'm just patenting it. If it's on Twitter, people know it's my idea. Then I'll write it. And then I wrote it like, I filed it that evening um, as, a, as a quick response. And I was like, and then of course, because if a tweet goes viral, you can then share the article under the viral tweet. So Look everyone at sees this guy. That's how it goes. The evil genius Okwanga. <laughs> See, everyone <laughs> thinks you're just a laugh and a, a roll neck. <laughs> now they're getting a glimpse into the deep. <laughs> exactly. The recesses. <laughs> this guy, man. Honestly, watch out, everyone. Exactly. But this is the, it's like the deleted scenes. <laughs> yeah, I told you when that panorama interview drops when I'm like 75 and you're dead. Yes, you'll be like, <laughs> yeah, you'll be like, I'd, you'll be chain smoking, won't you? Be chain smoking. Yeah. A thousand to, yard stare. I'd just be like, I tried to tell everyone. Tried to warn them. Tried to tell. No one would listen to me. They just kept talking about his laugh. He was right there in plain sight. <laughs> oh, Moose is so great. His laugh's amazing. I love the podcast because of Moose's laugh. I was like, God, everyone, wake up, sheeple. <laughs> 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 Wait, let's get out of here a couple of bits of admin Stadio Session 7 will be up in a day or two on mixlr.com forward slash Stadio can I say amazing session I absolutely loved it and it, yes, say, it was very warm in here it when was, I did it it was the perfect like preview to the fight it was perfect lead up let's have my sort of little bit of food my sort of salmon and like chilli cream sauce before the game mm, yeah, mm, yeah. La, la, there's another see Look at, sorry look at this guy man sorry sorry fucking living large did you have Messi playing a violin in the corner <laughs> my god so yeah great session though. they did a great session it was, it was amazing it was, it was like a two hours of house and techno some football commentary um, 
other admin. Oh yeah, the theme music. If you want to go and buy it, we're donating all the money. Stadio.bandcamp.com. Anything else, Okwanga? Most important thing I've got to say, stay hydrated. Stay hydrated, especially because we're playing out on this absolute heater. <laughs> Segway. Let's uh, <laughs> let these people live. Uh, we're playing out on William Oniabor, Love is Blind. Shout out to the amazing Luaka Pop label. Give us the go ahead to use their music. So uh, we'll be back on Thursday. Stay well, everyone. See you there.